Only six seconds left, and then Chad Kowarik will be released. Six seconds of power play time remaining. Henson was thrown out of the uh, face-off circle because Desch went over to shout instructions to Kalorn. Thank you for listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. If you'd like to contact the sports department, please email us at sports at WCBN.org or call the station at 734-763-3500. Pass comes forward. Here's Hensick. Now to Kaloric. He's behind the defense. He's in. Shot and score. Chad Kaloric out of the penalty box gives the Wolverines a 4-0 lead. Let's get it started here. Let's get it started. Let's get it started here. You are listening to the number one source for Michigan sports. WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. If you are an undergraduate who would like to get involved with the sports department, email us at sports at WCBN.org. Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And it's a nice spring day out there today, and I guess we'll briefly comment on sports. The national championship game is tonight. I'm sure everybody but Duke fans is rooting for the underdog. <laughs> Duke, Richard Nixon's alma mater. For law school, that is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, congratulations to the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, they have qualified for the playoffs. Yep. It's official. And uh, that's 19 years in a row. The longest professional sports streaks going. And I think it's a credit to the organization that's had to deal with a lot of problems this year related to injuries, free agency departures. And uh, they did a very nimble job of uh, making it happen in the second half. Well, and uh, when you think, too, that... Uh They've never missed the playoffs as as long as Nick Lidstrom has been playing. Yeah, it was a big thing to uh, pull it off, kind of at the last minute, uh, because it, it, you know, for a big chunk of the season, as you say, they would not have uh, made it had the playoffs started a couple of months ago. For example, uh, he is uh, one of the all-time greats to play the game, certainly to play that position, and it's a pretty solid bet that his number will be retired. To the rafters when uh, Nick Lidstrom does decide to uh, hang up the skates. Yeah, and they made that incredible seamless transition from the Russian five to the Swedish five, and uh, it's interesting how well they've played since uh, Lilia has returned. Yeah. Kind of an unsung hero who's actually missed a couple of games lately, but uh, I don't know. He gives them some sort of uh, stability back on defense. Erickson seems to play better, mm-hmm. and uh, the Red Wings actually have the best record since the Olympics. So nobody wants to face them. Yeah, that'll be a first-round uh, trouble for somebody. And we'll see what happens. Obviously, uh, I think the Wings are pretty good at stealing one of the road games, even though they'll be a, a road team, pretty much uh, mm-hmm. guaranteed. But uh, we wish them well, and uh, congratulations to the Detroit Red Wings, a very fine professional sports organization and in my opinion over the last 20 years uh, by far the best professional sports organization of any of the four major sports here in the United States well uh, oil has been in the news a lot this uh, week because of uh, 
Obama's decision to go with some sort of a limited offshore oil drilling plan uh, pending uh, state approval, I guess. It's a little uh, squishy about what the details are. Um, let's remember that no Republican voted for either the stimulus package or the health care reform bill, uh, insurance bill. So maybe it's a uh, bizarre way of defeating oil, <laughs> offshore oil drilling. You wonder how many of the Republicans will ultimately come on board as part of a energy bill connected to cap and trade. It is important to realize that America still imports and continues to import about 63% of its oil. We consume about 20 million barrels of oil a day. And it was interesting to note that today the uh, price of oil closed at 86.77 a barrel, way up. And it looks like, and this is before the quote driving season. Right. So it looks like uh, $3 gasoline is uh, not far behind. Well, and it also looks like, uh, as per our discussion last week about that film Petropolis, that the uh, environmental devastation wrought by the uh, removal of the coal sands, the tar sands, that mm -hmm. is, in uh, Alberta, up there in northwestern Canada, will continue apace. Because as long as oil prices stay in that 60 to $70 or higher per barrel range, it's cost-effective to... Uh, go through that uh, laborious and devastating process. And it's interesting. I actually have a uh, relevant update to that. There's actually, ironically, an article in today's New York Times business section specifically about the Alberta Sands uh, project uh, that's characterized as Canada's extra heavy oil. The Dudley Do-Right Factor, and I'm quoting uh, from a short today, and I neglected to write this gentleman's name down, but uh, the Dudley Do-Right Factor also helps Canada's stable and predictable government and is a rarity in the oil business. True, the sand-rich province of Alberta irked producers in 2007 by demanding an extra cut from the sharp rise in oil prices. But this was nothing compared to the political risks of energy companies that are accustomed to doing places of business in places like Nigeria, Russia, and Venezuela. Even so, the Athabasca investors, and that's the name of the river basin that we're talking about mm -hmm. here, um, seem merely uh, to be swapping potential troubles, the IPO valuation at about a dollar uh, for each contingent barrel, looks in line with industry averages as calculated by the research firm IHS Herald. But there are looming possibilities of environmental controls. Despite the industry's best efforts, extracting oil from the sands generates about 10% more carbon dioxide than conventional oil does. That could easily make a burden of greater regulation costly. And the economic hazards look dangerous as well. Oil sands stop b being economical south of $65 a barrel. So there you have it. You have the uh, factor that uh, the oil is basically not economically viable unless oil is priced at over $65 a barrel. And you have the additional uh, carbon uh, imprint of 10% more than traditional mm -hmm. oil production. So this is why we um, thought that that documentary called Petropolis 
uh, with such a outstanding film at the Ann Arbor Film Festival. It and it showed yeah. visually how devastating the environmental impact is to that area of uh, wilderness Canada. Yeah, worth looking around online. Uh, do a Google search on Petropolis the movie and you'll be taken to the site. Get a handful of images from it and some of its more important facts. <clears throat> Speaking of facts, uh, before we uh, delve into that massive tome that you're uh, flipping through the index of there, a quick brain damage award to His Grace Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, the Bishop, the Bishop. I we was too late. <laughs> who's who's Which, blown it? How prescient yeah. uh, that turns out to be. <laughs> He's blown a golden chance to sort of uh, reclaim the moral high ground. Of course, every year at Easter, the Pope delivers a speech at St. Peter's Square which is known as the Urbi et Orbi speech to, to the city and to the globe. And uh, often Pope John Paul II would, would sometimes throw in a, a rather surprising political uh, comment or two. And, uh, of course, he was part, uh, because of his Polish ancestry, was kind of caught up in the uh, Cold War rhetoric. But he would occasionally uh, go out on a limb and say condemn uh, the the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, for example, much to his credit. Well, uh, of course, the uh, controversy and the scandal over the sexual abuses of priests over the years has uh, not gone away. It's gotten bigger and bigger. And um, the Pope's response to this is is really no response at all. In fact, I was almost going to read this short article last week before Easter because this was just such a classic WTF sort of statement from the Pope. A brief little item in the Financial Times uh, headline, Pope finds courage in faith. Pope Benedict XVI, facing the sexual abuse scandal sweeping the Catholic Church, said yesterday that his faith would give him the courage not to be intimidated by critics. Hmm. Mm, well, uh, of course, one would expect the uh, Pope to uh, find courage in his faith, but uh, it's uh, offensive and an affront to a very serious problem, which has damaged uh, thousands of lives and, of course, uh, has the potential to uh, become the biggest publicity disaster for the Catholic Church since the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Uh, and this is uh, what he went on to say, the uh, pontiff addressing tens of thousands of people, uh, this is before Easter, uh, said that faith in God helped lead people, quote, towards the courage of not allowing oneself to be intimidated by petty gossip. That's a really insulting phrase. This is not petty gossip. No. This is a documented series of abuses and, you know, even the Catholic high school that I went to here in Michigan had a priest who came along at one point. He was assigned a new guy in town. He was a coach. He was a teacher. And uh, it turned out years later, oh, well, he was sent away somewhere else. And uh, somebody with whom my sister was, was good friends he was had an banished. unfortunate encounter with said priest who mm -hmm. mysteriously arrived and just as mysteriously departed. This was a worldwide problem uh, of epic proportions, and yeah. it is not simply petty gossip. And it seems like there was a systematic cover-up dating back to ch 
Pope John Paul II, yeah. and even before that. And one of the troubling things is the Vatican, quote-unquote, has responded to this with paid advertising in newspapers— mm-hmm in which they call this not a pedophilia uh, scandal, but a homosexual scandal. And the abuse occurred all over the place. This is a scandal of pedophilia and uh, may well be connected to the bizarre, uh, oh, I don't even know what they're called. Uh, I guess they're not canons, but I guess they're edicts uh, from the Vatican itself Mm -hmm. regarding... uh, priests and celibacy and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's it's definitely related to that. Uh, of course, one of the consequences is that lots and lots of people are peeling away from the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, it's believed that probably five million German Catholics, and of course this pope is, is German, uh, have uh, given up on the church. And of course, that's a loss of revenue for the church. You know, who cares about that? They sit on a vast, uncounted uh, treasure heap of... Uh, you know, throughout the historical ages. But uh, there's a lot of good people in the church, too. Sure. And the church does a lot of good work. Uh, Archbishop uh, Oscar Romero gave his life for uh, the struggles of the poor in El Salvador. And it's the classic bad apples thing. Uh, You know, most of the priests I knew uh, were were quality people, intellectuals, Mm -hmm. scholars, teachers. Uh, But for the... uh, Pope to sort of denounce this whole thing as petty gossip and to hide behind these sort of edicts uh, is ridiculous. And until they figure out that the sexual drive is a normal part of the human experience and the priest should be allowed to be married, the problem will continue. It will. And, I, you know, unfortunately, the Vatican is unaccountable in many realms mm-hmm. of uh, shall we say, secular law. Uh, there have been financial scandals. Banking weirdness, for sure. Banking weirdness, um, political collaboration with uh, horrible regimes. And, of course, the real crisis for the Catholic Church uh, here in the 21st century is the complete decline of its uh, influence in the industrialized world. Now, mm-hmm. where it's growing, interestingly, of course, is in Latin America and uh, Africa in particular. And there is a battle royale, incidentally, between the Catholic Church and some of the more, uh, shall we say, conversional denominations of Protestantism yep. that are battling in these uh, third world areas to create converts to the faith, so to speak. And uh, this this pope is blowing a chance to address uh, a significant scandal because the next pope is likely to be an African or a South American. In yeah. fact, that should have been if the church was thinking ahead, they would have gone with that instead of uh, this guy who's just so old school. He looks like Nosferatu. Um, <clears throat> so uh, it, it'll be a lot easier for the church to deal with this problem if it comes from a European pope. To say, oh, okay, well, there's been this historic series of abuses. It's going to stop now, and uh, under my watch, yeah, you know, we're going to deal with this. But apparently, that's not the strategy. Uh, and his uh, biographer, a guy named John Allen, uh, speaking about Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, says Ratzinger has the great gift of thinking in terms of centuries. He's never terribly bothered by today's news, but we don't live in a world of 500 years time. <laughs> And one wishes for a more energetic and on-the-ball response, uh, indeed. 
Well, yeah, I guess I'll quote John Maynard Keynes, we're all dead in the long run. <laughs> and when asked uh, about whether or not the French Revolution had been a success, Cho and Lai said, it's too early to tell. <laughs> so there are lots of people that think in terms of centuries um, yeah. or millennia, so to speak. And uh, needless to say, some of the Wahhabi uh, Muslims over in the Afghanistan, Pakistan area yeah. think in those terms as well. And, of course, uh, here in the United States, unfortunately, we have a political party that's uh, trying to wipe out the 20th century in terms of secular progress that we've made uh, yeah. in all sorts of areas of um, civil rights, uh, constitutional rights, economic rights, etc. And they're promoting nullification. Oh, well, they needed the bishop, and he was too late. He was too late. Oh, brother. Well, uh, I've been predicting, I wanted to bring uh, this to people's attention, um, about the real crisis. There are many crises, uh, crises in, uh, in American health care, but in a growing sign of, uh, I think, what we'll uh, see in the future here, uh, this from a couple of weeks ago, dated the 19th of March, um, article by Kevin Sack uh, regarding Arizona. And, of course, John McCain mm -hmm. is uh, running for re-election in that state. Sarah Palin. Uh, campaigning without his space helmet. Uh, campaigning with McCain, who's without his space <laughs> helmet, and she seems to be without the bishop. <laughs> but I'm sure he's uh, soon to be on stage as uh, she brings us more uh, stories. What, what was the Fox special she had last week that was... So ludicrous, it was comical that it was even being aired. <laughs> you know, ordinary people overcoming in which right. they tried to recycle old interviews that Fox didn't even take. I mean, it was <laughs> absurd. But anyway, a tangent. I di digress, diverge. Arizona on Thursday became the first state to eliminate its CHIP program under Governor Jan Brewer, who signed an austere budget that will leave nearly 47,000 low-income children without coverage. The Arizona budget is a vivid reflection of how the fiscal crisis afflicting state governments is cutting deeply into health care. The state also will roll back Medicaid coverage for childless uh, adults in a move that is expected to eventually drop 330,000 uh, people from its rolls. So we're talking here about... Over 350,000 people affected. These are the, the budget cuts that we can, uh, well, it, it foreshadows budget cuts in other states in which uh, Medicaid is the health care uh, program provided by the government that will be cut first because I've argued that uh, given a choice between cutting the poor, cutting children, and Arizona, uh, and, and the elderly, that uh, the poor will be focused on first, Medicaid. And in this case, uh, Arizona's decided to cut uh, both the poor and children. So this is a uh, troubling trend that does not bode well, uh, given the fact that state governments around the country uh, were burdened with this Medicaid uh, problem, interestingly, when the Republicans were in control of Congress and pushed this responsibility back onto the states. Yeah, I uh, look forward to seeing how John McCain will spin that one, uh, cutting the children. Yeah. 
Got to cut those taxes. Well, hopefully it'll be the revival of the bootstrap theory. <laughs> it's Horatio Alger for all of you. Suffer the little children. And I pointed out, by the way, that uh, the, earlier in the show that the Republicans, not one of them, voted uh, in the House of Representatives for the stimulus package last year. And uh, while it's uh, too early to tell, to paraphrase George Scott from uh, Dr. Strangelove, we don't want to con condemn the program when all the results aren't in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have the new unemployment numbers. Uh, it's interesting that this was basically the first month under the Obama administration in which there was some palpable job growth. Obviously, this is clouded by the fact that uh, the census uh, did hire, um, quote, a third of the new jobs were census-related jobs, temporary jobs connected to the 2010 census. And 48,000 new census workers uh, are, quote, counting their blessings. Uh, Health care added uh, 27,000 jobs uh, last month. And uh, one can look at any graph showing the distinct improvement in the economy once the stimulus bill was passed mm -hmm. by the Congress uh, in the early months of the uh, Obama administration. And it was the... Uh, shall we say, the wholesale party opposition uh, to the stimulus uh, bill that caused Arlen Specter to switch parties. Yep. And it's very important to remember when we think about this 60-vote debate that the uh, media was fascinated with last year, there really never were 60 votes in the Senate uh, on the health care uh, legislation until Robert Byrd was wheeled in in uh, December mm -hmm. to... Uh, vote for the cloture uh, measure. Specter switched parties several months into the Obama administration. Al Franken was not seated right. until late June of last year due to the legal challenges of Norm Coleman. <laughs> I don't know if it was Norm from Cheers, but uh, he certainly acted like a drunk. And then, of course, Ted Kennedy was disabled pretty much the whole year uh, due to his uh, brain cancer. Paul Kirk replaced him in September. They finally, on paper, had 60 votes, but Byrd fell ill. So uh, it was the unusual steps in which Byrd had to be wheeled in. And, of course, Robert Byrd is uh, well past his prime. And uh, one wonders how long he will remain a viable senator. Uh, but uh, those are the facts regarding the 60-vote uh, cloture uh, filibuster margin, and we may see this uh, come into play possibly even later this summer uh, because there are rumblings that John Paul Stevens may retire at the end mm -hmm. of the court term uh, this year. So uh, keep an eye on that. Who appointed uh, Stevens? He was appointed by Gerald Ford. Okay. And it's interesting, back in that era, he was considered kind of an iconoclastic conservative. <laughs> which just shows how far the, the court has moved yeah. uh, to the uh, center and to the right. Um, startling stuff uh, in terms of historical perspective. But uh, back then there was a kind of odd, um, shall we say, tension between the Nixon appointees who were generally conservative, Rehnquist and Berger in, in particular, 
and Powell, very conservative, mm-hmm. whereas Blackman began moving more towards the liberal side over time. And, of course, he was the author of the Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. uh, uh, ruling back in 1973, in which, by the way, both Powell and Berger voted with the majority. Two Nixon appointees. Three Nixon appointees on the Roe v. Yeah. Wade uh, issue. Well, uh, I, uh, speaking of Nixon, I, I always have a kind of a humorous item to bring to everyone's attention from history. Uh, over the week, of course, uh, Ann Arbor celebrated Hash Bash again. I didn't attend any of the events, but I understand Cheech and Chong were in town. <laughs> yeah, they were at the Michigan Theater that night. The town was uh, bustling with... Uh, Activity in the streets. But uh, I may have humorously tracked down the origin of, we've got a 420 in progress. (laughs) Uh, If you'll recall from the uh, Oliver Stone-Nixon movie, there was a scene in which Nixon, while uh, playing Rachmaninoff early in the morning, decides to go down to the uh, Lincoln Memorial to talk to anti-war protesters. And... uh, it's interesting because uh, that th- this came in the midst of the uh, Kent State uh, incident, and Nixon was forced on the ninth of excuse me on the eighth of I think it was the eighth of May, but he went on TV to declare that the troops would be out of Cambodia by June thirtieth. It had, it had been revealed that Nixon had started a secret war in Cambodia back in nineteen sixty nine that included. Uh, systematic bombing as well as an outright invasion. This, of course, historically contributed to the backing of Alain Nol uh, in the uh, sort of overthrow of Prince Sihanouk, who was uh, pursuing a policy of uh, sort of negotiated neutrality rather than a pro-American mm-hmm. uh, position. And, of course, here at home it had led to a sort of a, a rise in uh, political activity from the young on college campuses protest to these illegal maneuvers. So anyway, uh, that night, because of all the war protests that were going on, Nixon gave a national address to the nation. Uh, William Sapphire is quoted as saying that Nixon said, if the crazies try anything, we'll clobber them. And he called it the strangest, most impulsive, and perhaps most revealing night of Nixon's presidency. Uh, As Kissinger put it, Washington took on a character of a besieged city. The president only got a couple of hours sleep. Valet Manolo Sanchez heard music from his room at 4.20 a.m. Nixon told Sanchez to order up a limousine. Spirited out of the fortress, Nixon had himself driven down to the Lincoln Memorial. There he struck up a conversation with students from Syracuse, three Secret Service agents who accompanied him were petrified, undoubtedly saying, we have a 420 in progress. <laughs> the phone awoke Haldeman about 5 oh. o'clock a.m. The president was at the Lincoln Memorial. John Ehrlichman gasped. They sent Egil Bud Crow, Ehrlichman's assistant, chasing after him. Crow found an eerie scene with Nixon in campaign mode, as if he could wade into the crowd and shake hands. Unfortunately, Crow observed, the students were geared up for the kind of dialogue or rapping which hardly any of us are capable of doing. (laughs) Syracuse was on strike. It's students typical of those protesting in Washington. Searching for common ground, Nixon discussed 
It's football prospects. <laughs> I hope it uh, it was because he was tired, observed sophomore John Pelletier, but most of what he was saying was absurd. Um, and that, my friends, was uh, Richard Nixon on the uh, morning of May 9th, in which the Secret Service undoubtedly had to report, we have a 420 in progress. And that little uh, dramatic reading is courtesy of... Uh, Vietnam, John Prados's new uh, book, The History of an Unwinnable War, 1945 to 1975, published by the University of Kansas Press. This is a really outstanding historical analysis of the Vietnam War, and by the subtitle you can tell, um, Unwinnable. And it certainly um, has some relevance to the uh, current problems that the United States is having with uh, Karzai in Afghanistan. Indeed, and what an awkward moment that was last week uh, to segue from the awkwardness of Nixon's personal uh, attempts to wield a charm offensive with the youth. <clears throat> Rapping is for the youth, Tricky Dick. Uh, not deranged war criminals, but uh, just four days after Barack Obama went to Afghanistan... Karzai, Hamid Karzai, uh, the mayor of Kabul, yeah. uh, sometimes known as the president of Afghanistan, uh, is on record speaking to uh, the parliament in Kabul as having said this, quote, no doubt there was huge fraud in the elections in Afghanistan. There was vast fraud. The fraud is not by the Afghans. The fraud has been done by the foreigners. Oh, you mean the guys who prop you up and who have kept you in power for oh those people not you um this is remarkable um i mean you know bite the hand that feeds you mm -hmm. whatever whatever colloquial expression you want to come up with here but karzai went on to say uh, this election was occurring during a time when there were threats from the terrorists it was not only the threat from the terrorists it took place under the threat of foreign interference. Oh, my gosh. Foreign interference in Afghanistan? No. No. Uh, pretty remarkable stuff. He's not been a popular guy uh, with the uh, Obama administration um, from the get-go. But one wonders, uh, what so who's he trying to outmaneuver here? Well, one wonders, and I think that... Uh he, uh, of course, the analogies between DM and the Karzai brothers, uh, apparently mm. his brother is part of a sort of quasi-mafioso operation that's connected to the opium trade and all sorts of corruption, is at the heart of the, uh, one, uh, heart of the one of the problems that America uh, has moving for, quote, forward in Afghanistan. And certainly corruption and disregard of sort of reality on the ground was one of the problems that the... Diamond knew had back mm -hmm. in 1963 that led to the uh, ultimate acquiescence of uh, the Kennedy administration's uh, acquiescence in the coup. Uh, the Kennedy administration did not um, approve the murder of Diamond and his uh, brother, but uh, it certainly sped and led to the events of uh, the Gulf of Tonkin in August of 2000, uh, 1964. And as Prados' book points out, that, that event was completely fraudulent Yeah, from pretty much every single angle. And, of course, uh, 
shows historical comparisons to how the Bush administration manipulated and uh, fraudulently uh, manipulated the weapons of mass destruction regarding the Iraq right. war it's an, in its entirety. Um, 